You know, the Beatles, uh, 60 years ago, I believe it was March, I heard their first single. They came out, I was living in Chicago then, and uh, so I was eight. And uh, Please Please Me was the song. Uh, it entered the charts at number 37, and it was off the charts the next week. <clears throat> and they were never to be heard from again on the American charts till Ed Sullivan the following February. So that was 63. In 66, um, I fell into booking athletes at meetings uh, for little leagues and football leagues. And Brian Piccolo was my main guy, the guy who the, he had the movie about him called Brian's Song. Um, who didn't cry when they saw Brian's Song? Everybody knows the movie. Uh, anyway, uh, he paid me my first commission. Uh, which was 10% on a $300 booking. And and when I mentioned to him that I had done this before, well, remember it was 66, that's worth about $40 billion now. Um, uh, he mentioned it to his coach, George Hallis, the guy that invented the NFL. Uh, and George took me into the locker room and said, and you know this kid? A bunch of them said, yeah. I understand you've all stiffed him on commissions. Beckelo told on you. And they all beating him up, throwing shoes at him and shit. And I ended up with $300. Uh, right there, he passed the hat. So I thought, this is for me. I can, I don't have to take the hits on the field, and I can make money getting them other gigs. Because remember, well, maybe you don't remember, but back in those days, football players made 25 grand. Yeah. 30 grand, 40 grand, and they all worked jobs uh, in the off season. They sell cars. My grandfather played football in the 40s. Made nothing. You have to, you have to use the mic. Yeah, come on. Use the mic. You know this. He's going to keep going. Okay, my grandfather played. The last time the Cardinals won the uh, Super Bowl, he was on the team. Chicago Cardinals. He got it, 1947. Wow. And then they lost in 48. To, to Philadelphia. He went to deathbed resenting that game. Uh, but the point is, 900 bucks a game. After. Play. They were injured or whatever, didn't play. Okay. Game. And then they worked jobs in the offseason back then, back in the leather helmet days. They didn't have what? No, very hardly. Cool. Yeah, but well, it was a great gig for him. He loved the, it. Uh, getting getting here after all that, uh, it seemed like a pretty quick ride. And uh, in '73, May 2nd, I met Alice Cooper and Shep Gordon. Uh, at the what year? '73, 50 years ago next week. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was born in '68, and it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was born in '89. Blood is '89. <laughs> Anybody here born before '60? No, not before '60. Not before '60. Holy shit! I'm old. Um, anyway, uh, but then everything from that first like chance meeting, I went down to do security at an Alice Cooper concert found my way into the hall, found my way into his dressing room, and there's Alice drinking, which is what he used to do. And we sat there all afternoon drinking. And, and then I was gonna do security in front of the stage. Shep walks in and he goes, who the hell's this kid? He goes, it's my security guy. He goes, great, <laughs> drinking beer all afternoon. Um, and uh, in that 50 years, uh, we all became best friends and concerts started happening. Uh, in 74 and throughout all that time I, I was a, a collector of things because it just I just liked them not because they were going to be worth money one day I had no idea and back then I mean there's always people selling autographs but I didn't know about any of them I had no money but I had baseball cards from the 50s and the 60s that I still have that are tremendously valuable a lot of them are signed and um, when it turned into music then, um, with all the concerts, they would sign 10 or 20 things to show for me. So I had to um, rent out five different storage units. We had the Dodge Theater, we had Alice Cooperstown, we had my house, my office, the guest house, all filled to the brim 
with stuff, not a hoarder, because it was pretty organized the whole time. But there's thousands of t-shirts, all of the concert files from 40, 50 years, uh, records of over a billion dollars in, in sales and, 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 and millions of people that came to the shows. And now we're at the time where, all right, what am I gonna do with this stuff? Yeah, by the way, has anyone here seen the collection or? Yeah, I'll share a little bit. So some, some people, uh, Evan, Where's Evan? Um, he was getting some like those on treatment. He's about he's like five minutes. Oh yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Evan and uh, Jay as Grandmaster Collectors actually got to walk around your house and uh, it's it's amazing because the house is beautiful, by the way, beautiful home. And he'll just be like, hey, uh, like Jay, he's like, hey, pull 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 out whatever's under the couch there. Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, this is weird. And it's a guitar case. It's like signed by the Beatles. Just laying around the house. It's, it's a really amazing The experience. Beatles have their own safe. That was a Jeff Beck. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it was a Jeff Beck. Yeah, never mind. That's a Jeff Beck. Yeah. No, no, it's, let, let me also give some context of Danny. So Danny is one of the, you're probably the last remaining concert promoter of your kind, or is there anyone even like you anymore? Yeah, there's, there's a, a handful. A handful. And they're probably all buddies of yours, I'm yeah. assuming, yeah. And, um, you Except know. that one guy. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Fuck that guy, too. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's not just he has a collection of stuff. He has all these stories that go with, you know, if someone inherited a collection of art or music or instruments or photos or whatever that's one thing but to know the history and so I think with with Danny being able to curate organize narrate it and have an understanding so I mean we have videos of the first tour around his house which is just fascinating mm -hmm. uh, and yeah I mean there's there's a lot that I think could be uniquely done to to share this with the world like what terminal is your display in the uh in the airport it, right it, now it just went up to number three number three well i think on uh, arrivals yeah i i haven't seen it yet they i mean they came and got it from the house and they had it up so like delta and when you get delta yeah you get picked up when you arrive here and you get picked up from the airport you're in that terminal that's terminal three. yeah terminal three yeah. not the southwest one yeah that's terminal four I no. wanted to be in that one because I always use that one, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, and I and I met uh, Danny through, I, th I think, Alice. Yeah, we had dinner with, uh, so I, I met Alice Cooper originally through our buddy Mark Tarbell. And then I, first time I, I had dinner with Alice was at Tarbell's, and then we had a private dinner at your house. And, uh, and yeah, it was great. And then I, you know, I've gotten to know Alice. But, but before that, what, what's hilarious was I was with Shep in Hawaii one night, and we're both being super gay, wearing our sarongs, you know, and nothing else, and we're <laughs> and we're just really hamming up. And he, he goes, set ten, set places for ten people. I go, I thought there's just four of us tonight. And he goes, no. He goes, there's these guys in Amsterdam. I put out this offer. I didn't think anybody would take it. Buy 500 copies of my book. And for 30 bucks a shot, so he spent 15 grand. And uh, you come to my house and I'll cook dinner for you for six people. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be your buddies from Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, Elko and And, and, uh, and what's the other guy? Dean. Uh, the local guy here, the uh, kind of big guy with a good looking wife. Um, Mark, no. Um, She's Brazilian. Michael. She's Brazilian. He's a fitness. Not Michael. No, no, no. Oh, Robbie? No, not Robbie. Not he's Robbie. He's been all over the world. He's traveling like good friend of yours. I can't remember his name though. Yeah, I just know so many people. I'm trying. Yeah, to think I know. Of who. A lot of big guys with a good-looking wife. That good would be like five hundred people. They, they travel to the jungles and stuff. You know. You know who it was? I mean, who? the real Tarzan. He could be. The real Tarzan. Just ignore Douglas. Yeah. That's what we do. He's high. If, if it comes to me, I'll, yeah, well, anyway. But the, the, the whole weirdness of, I mean, talk about small world. Right, right. Because I didn't, no, I did know you. We'd already done the dinner when this all happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they show up and, you know, Joe Polish? Get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, you know, it's, what's, uh, 
what's funny about it too is that the the tie-in with um just like uh, our buddy uh kenny arnoff you know so kenny's one of the top drummers in the world and so he was playing with uh, joe satriani and um i have a video of danny and uh, kenny saying things that i think right now would be Hi there arrested it's great it's it's so much just, but the point is, is you have a, depth, a depth of knowledge of the history of music okay and everything what, um, and, and for people that don't know shep gordon why don't you give a context of shep because shep has the um shep is alice's manager and has been since the beginning um jimmy hendrix introduced himself the story i don't believe a fucking word shep tells me though but he claims they were at that um, hotel on Santa Monica Boulevard with the guitar pool. Um, what famous old hotel? Okay. It was on Santa Monica, Marmont, and Sunset. Anyway, they were there, and Shep was a pot dealer, and and all all the bands gravitated towards him. And, and Jimi Hendrix says to him, "Let's do that." Let's do You should manage yourself, Cooper guy. He goes, because I'm a Jew. He goes, yeah, you guys are good at this stuff. So there's another one to get thrown out for. Um, yeah, but uh, years later, Shep hey, Evan, mute yourself. Uh, an empire with artists as manager, and then he started managing chefs. Talk about somebody using right something right in front of him. he liked to eat he wanted to cook so he sought out uh, jean george in uh, france and became his student and he he learned how to cook and then he started managing chefs are the most abused people were the most abused people around now they're celebrities now they got tv shows all because chefs started making chefs important instead of you know they they yeah they, he invented the celebrity chef he, by, they catered yeah. they, they would cater dinners and they'd walk away with 100 bucks or 200 bucks at the end of it uh, he did uh emerald's first seasoning deals mm -hmm. um in this in the store and it's still there emerald's pictures on the bottle look whatever the seasoning is chef made the deal he makes a quarter of a million dollars a quarter from making this deal 20 years ago, and the deal expired after 10 years, and Emerald's lawyer said, "All right, we're cutting Chef uh, Chef off. We're not giving him any more." He goes, "Fuck you," because that he without him, I wouldn't be here, and that's like a nothing. I should give him more. Right. So it it kept up, and uh, so he be, he owns restaurants and all this other stuff in Hawaii. Uh, long story short, Mike Myers from Austin Powers fame was staying in the house next door to him that Shep owned and then sold to somebody else with the understanding that if the guy isn't there, he can use it for his guests like he still owns it until he's dead. So 20 million for the house and it's still his. Mm -hmm. uh, Myers is staying there. He made the worst movie in life called the Love Guru, the worst movie ever made, and the uh, second to Caddyshack too. Uh, but uh, he he and I told him I first met Myers and he, I searched the camera about they go Love Guru. And he, goes, he goes fuck you. And I, I said, but I know why you made the movie. He goes, tell me. I said, you got to make out with Jessica Alba. And he goes, how did you know? I said, who would risk their entire career? Which you just did, and you just flushed it to make out with a beautiful girl. He goes, stupid reason to do a movie. <laughs> um, but while, and he was getting over his depression of failure, such heavy-duty failure, so he's staying next to Shep, and he's getting to know Shep over a month's time. It was supposed to be a week. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a month, and he goes, you know, you're amazing. He gets to witness all these people coming in and out. And he goes, I want to make a movie about you. So he spent a million dollars doing this documentary, interviewing people. I was interviewed for it, and they screwed it up, so I'm not, I'm only in it for a picture. But anyway, it, it was a fantastic movie. Great movie, yeah. And it's called Supermensch, and it's on Netflix. Yeah, and totally then, worth watching. And, Great and then after that, uh, he caught Bourdain's eye 
about the chef and the music and, and Bourdain and drugs, everything that they have in common. And and uh, Bourdain came and stayed there for a week, and he cooked for us. Um, I had Chris Christopherson over. He goes. He calls me up like a like somebody would call me up and say, "Can I meet Ringo?" He calls me up. He never calls me. He goes, "I really like to be at that dinner. Do you think you can get me a seat?" I said, "I guess so." <laughs> He's the best. Um, so we had we had a great a great time there. And during that week, Bourdain signed Shep to a book deal mm -hmm. with his imprint with the big publisher in New York. So. Most times people make books and then get movies made about them. This went reverse. He got a movie first, then the book deal, and he said the only reason he did either of them was so he could get invited to some good celebrity golf tournaments. Right. That's and it worked. <coughs> well, my, my question for you on all this, okay, so like in, in Supermensch, and I, I've interviewed Shep for my podcast, and uh, this line uh, is, he's like, I've never seen anything good come out of fame. Those that go, rise to the highest fall the hardest. And you've seen all kinds of uh, people that are famous. You've helped make people famous. You've been around that world, at least predominantly in entertainment and music and whatnot. Um, what, are the, uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of fame? Uh, once you get it, half, uh, half of your energy is back on you and what you do with that is really important. The the chase for the fame is one thing, it's another thing getting there and then maintaining it. Um, next to impossible to get there or to maintain it. Doing both is incredible because typically everybody does it without any kind of roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you have to follow one foot after another. You have to use your energy correctly. I'm a big believer in energy as well as far as how things are driven and why things happen the way they do, and it's because you're you're you should be constantly pushing things in that motion. So the fame part, I I think everybody once they get it, they could do without. Mm -hmm. uh, they like getting the money, but but for me, for doing what I do, and I'm not even the guy who's performing on stage, but I get it. It's such a rush to have like-minded people you don't know coming to your events on a regular basis, whether you're the promoter or the band. And and that rush people get from doing that, I mean, it, it takes hours to come down after a show mm -hmm. um, from that because the, the energy that's instilled in you is incredible. Um, I mean, I, I just had a psychedelic first show last night. I really like them, but I don't like them as much as other bands. Like if I saw a Floyd show 40 years ago, or or King Crimson, or you know Skinner with Ronnie Van Zant opening for the Who. You know, I mean, shows that you you just can't get out of your head. Jeff Beck shows that just unbelievable. And then how the world had to react when he died. I mean, and then they didn't realize how much they loved him till he was dead. And like the old song says, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So the, the Cinderella, fame, the fame thing is, is, it's a great thing. It's a, an uncontrollable monster that's in, in, next to impossible to keep a grip on. Yeah, you know, Janis Joplin had that line, which is, you know, I go out and make love to 20,000 people, and then I go back to my hotel room alone. Her and Mr. Brownstone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. She, what's that? Do you know Janis Joplin? No, 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 no. She was before me. That was one. Yeah. But Shep Gordon did know her. Her and Irving Berlin, they were before. Me. <laughs> well, okay. So, like when I when I uh, introduced you to Nick, um, I felt that you know it's very interesting because I come from a marketing world of, of books and courses and authors and coaches and you know I learned marketing when I was a dead broke carpet cleaner and you were telling me downstairs you used to be a cleaner too which is like really funny so we find all these ways that we get into these accidental industries but then it leads to something you know because you're you're paying attention for opportunities so uh you are you you are a concert promoter La last show i went to that you did here was i think roger waters mm -hmm. and that was an amazing show and that was you know, a few months ago um you promote 
concerts, you promote musicians, you promote comedians and talent and performance and, you know, everything in between. Uh, and then, of course, Nick, you know, what you, your background in marketing and promotion, and here you have uh, an incredible archive and a history uh, in a museum basically sitting in uh, organized boxes, drawers, containers, files. Some of it's on display, but the vast majority uh, is not. And this is incredibly valuable stuff. And there's incredible stories behind it. And it is it shows a whole history of, uh, of music that has forged what people listen to and how they respond to life. And I felt, you know, if there's any great community that could probably take this asset and do something amazing with it so it lives on forever, it could be whatever is created here. So why don't you guys talk about that? And, yeah. and, you know, how, how do you see it? Because uh, I only, what I'm good at is making connections, but you know, who you hand the baton to has a lot to do with how you win the race and what the race is gonna look like, so. Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit about um... Again, it comes back to step one, provenance and royalties. Music, obviously royalties is huge. Uh, memorabilia, provenance is important. Uh, you know, certificate of authenticities and stuff. Uh, what's really cool is you have the original contracts for all of the all the shows you did, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking that, you know, and Joe has always got amazing ideas. We're thinking like, okay, we got this story. We got a story behind every piece. And eventually, hopefully you guys will see this because it'll be displayed in a, in a building here in Phoenix. I, there, there's no words to explain what it looks like. So as we were going through the house, I was thinking, okay, first of all, what can we do? There's an infinite number of things that we could do. And then second of all, what, what, what parts of it make sense on the blockchain? That's really the question. It goes to provenance uh, and, and royalties is really important. So we're looking at uh, we're looking at just putting together. There'll, there'll be multiple steps, and I still got to I get a lot of time with Danny and his team. So I got to get them caught up to the tech because it's. You guys remember coming to the crypto for the first time? It's a lot to. It's a whole rewiring. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's it's a paradigm shift. It takes a long time to figure out what the fuck is going on. Uh, but if as we get into this, we also have things like uh, you know we've talked about. Uh, making a run at Ticketmaster, like ticketing on the blockchain. It's a huge opportunity. Think about royalties. What do you think about how much, what does Ticketmaster take, like 14, 16, 20%, something crazy like that? Something like that. Yeah, StubHub, all these places. So so there's a, there's a huge picture, but then there's like the, the first step, which is really interesting to me, which is just getting a very basic like membership called the DZP All Access. His book is All Access. Uh, Occupation. Uh, do you have a copy of it here? I was it's somewhere. I, 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 I looked at. I, I was running around trying to be like, what shelf is it on? But I, <laughs> I didn't find it yet. So just a little little uh, membership. Obviously, your NFT is proof of being a member, uh, and that also give first opportunity at the stuff that comes out next. Yeah, but, but which, by the way, what's the title of your book? All Access. Exactly. Yeah. Think of the perfect title, right? With an NFT, with all this, All Access, right? Because that's what people want. They want access. But what are they accessing? And what and what, what needs to be packaged up in a way that people want that access? It's, it's, it's very interesting. So we've talked a little, and you guys will see this because you're all guardians. So as it comes out, you'll be... Danny's team and I, we talk about it, and then, you know, when we're pretty sure about what we're doing, we'll share it with you guys, because you'll understand the tech. What I really want to do while we're sitting here is just for uh, Danny, because you guys have heard me talk about him, you've heard me talk about Howard as well, and Akshay, for that matter, uh, put a face to the name first, but then can you describe just some of the stuff laying around your house? Yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, what is your favorite piece of all? Well, that Beatles guitar, is, I bought it in an auction in the, in the 90s for a ridiculously low sum. And it, it's a 1965 Gibson acoustic with fountain pen signatures on them, which is correct for the time. And the signatures are flawless. The guitar is flawless. It sounds great. Uh, I had a safe built for that. 
um, and it contains a lot of other stuff. But uh, the guitar collection is pretty good. A couple hundred of those signed uh, from from people like Tony Iommi and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and a lot of Santana guitars. Um, and 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 I actually sold some because I just ran out of room in this room that I wanted to keep them, and it was I couldn't walk in there anymore. And he has, he has a multi-million-dollar house in Paradise Valley devoted just to storing the shit. Well, it's very like I need a new one. No, I, I just bought another place to to empty the storerooms into because I was well. This is one of the things that I want to recoup in the sale of uh, in, in doing this is I spent close to, anyway a million dollars on on people to look after this stuff to organize it to rent space uh, the house that's our office I bought expressly for storage and then it turned into my office and it's still storage but it's also an office um, other other stuff around though there's just great um, great some great lithos uh, uh, the Jeff Beck lithos are, are amazing. I got a lot of John Prine stuff, who is one of my best friends. It was the first person I know that got killed from COVID, um, which was a disaster, terrible thing. Um, but, you know, the Beatles stuff uh, is great. But, you know, you're talking about the contracts, and that's one of the biggest space robbers in in the existence of the collection, it, 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 it fills an entire room, a room this big, uh, or close to it, um, and they're stacked that, that high, but I mean, each box has maybe two months in it. I was doing 500 shows a year for a while, so every, every one of the autograph pieces or posters or anything to do with the show, passes, t-shirts, all can be backed up with my contracts that have my signature on them, and in many cases, the artists. But in order to prove the, the legitimacy of any piece of memorabilia, having a contract showing that you paid them that day mm -hmm. helps a lot. Um, it, it, to me, it eliminates the need to go to an authenticity uh, guy, an authentic, uh, authenticator. I, I, I don't like them. If there's something not in it for an authenticator, they won't give you a, a, a clean bill of health if there's the slightest doubt in their mind, unless there's something in it for them. Mm -hmm. So. I, I like to go, I, I give my own certificates when we do sell stuff. I got most of the obscure stuff is on eBay, which won't amount to anything to anybody that's into Thoroughgood or Skinner, all, all these wild names and groups that lasted one tour that attracted fans and they're still out there. It's unbelievable. Um, so, I, you know, 15,000 shows and, and I got something from every one of them. Literally. The bathroom is what we call it. The pizza boxes? Yeah. There's a bathroom, you open the door, pizza boxes stacked to the ceiling. And it's all like concert stuff. Posters, autograph posters. Well, it didn't fit in certain drawers because they were oversized. Yeah, it's like, funny. I opened one up and there's pictures of Paul Abdul. And Paul Abdul's a friend of mine, so I shoot a, a, a video and send it to Paula. Like, she like she's, she's, yeah, she looks funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, she's great. Yeah. So. You've got massive fire protection on this stuff. No. Um, insurance uh, is about 10% of the value of the uh, authentication. So I'd have to go figure 10% for for the insurance and $50 to $300 a piece to authenticate it from somebody that wasn't there like I was and I gotta pay somebody to say it's okay. Do they have chemicals in the room? Oh, there's nothing. On the wild side, so so that yeah. th that would be something in the event that this all works out. Um, I'd like to get reimbursed some of that money for for all the uh, storage and all the people I've paid over years. But the main thing would be to either buy or build a building to display everything, so anybody could go see it anytime they wanted. Um, and, and then I'd like to, because uh, I got most of this stuff for free. I'd like to um, create some music scholarships that aren't necessarily for just music people, musicians, but people in the music business 
itself because there's a, there's things for lawyers and uh, publishers and merchandisers, you name it, promoters. Uh, people, I mean, it, it's no longer a business that's run in in back alleys and dark offices. I mean, it, it's concerts have become slowly like that thing that said on the wall, how long did Netflix take and how long did uh, AI take? It, it took our business years. Think about from the 70s, which is when I started doing concerts, how it's evolved into greater equipment, larger stages. When I started doing shows, the arenas pissed on anybody that called up asking, could we do a concert here? Oh, the drugs and all you freaky people, that shitty music, you know, and, and sooner or later, it took a little bit, but like, I remember Chicago Stadium, the Wirtz family would not allow concerts. They didn't, they had concerts here at the Coliseum. Jimi Hendrix uh, played there at the State Fair and the door, Jim got arrested there for, for pissing on the stage or something. And, uh, but they didn't like the whole idea of these concerts. They treated us like we were animals. Um, but now it's, I mean, they build arenas so you can not only hold the hockey team and the basketball team, but the concerts in addition to the ice skating and the circus and, and all the rest of that stuff. So now we've become valuable content. Um, and, and the groups, I mean, some of the groups, Eagles and Madonna and all these people, they're, they're bigger than they've ever been. They charge more than they ever have, which to me it's just a game and a competition between them because they don't need the money. Uh, why does Paul McCartney charge $5,000 for a front row seat? Because he can. He used to be poor. He ate dirt. He never forgot it, and people don't. Mm -hmm. You don't forget being poor and not having money. And when somebody says Mick Jagger is making more than you, you go, no, he's not, and you charge more. It's a game, you know, and, but it's all driven by the artist. I mean, you know, he could easily go out and say, here's our tickets for five bucks right. and, and, and make the world a real happy place. Then he'd say, but they're going to take those $5 tickets and sell them for thousands. So that's what's the fly in the whole ticketing ointment is the fact that you have this third tier of, of owners, and they're, they're the owners of the ticketing companies that are the ones doing it. So, I mean, it, it's like the tiger, you know, tigers eating their young. I mean, it's just awful. That should be regulated. That's the only thing, like gas prices, it should be regulated. Um, there's no reason for people to make all that money. There's, it's, it doesn't cost. However, there'll be a lot of people that say, free market, man, do what you gotta do. And I agree with that too. Pay all you want for a ticket, I don't care. Well, the the problem is I'd when, like to get a part of it, though. The problem is when promoters and artists are not reaping that benefit, right? Like, what's the incentive? Look, look, what, look what it does. It creates platinum ticketing, VIP, every sort of ticketing you can imagine to add another layer of income on it. Um, but the artist shares in that. The building shares in it, the promoter shares in it. I don't need it though, and none of them need it either. Why kill the golden goose? The golden goose are normal people who aren't in this room, right? Who, who make 500 or 1,000 a week, 1,500 a week. Regular people, regular money, and they want to go to shows too. And then they put these shows on sale for thousands of dollars, six months or a year in advance. Mm -hmm. So you're mortgaging your future on your credit card when you should be paying your rent and buying food for your family. And the Eagles need $1,000 a pair of tickets. Six months from now, or year from, I, there's some wrong things about it that could be fixed. But on the on the good side of it, people are more fascinated than ever with this whole industry. Um, it's become way more popular and above board and and out there. Whereas before, it was just concert fans that used to go to concerts. Now it's everybody goes to concerts the same way they go to football games. Mm -hmm. So we're doing uh, an album. Couple more minutes here. Um, we're doing the D DZP All Access. Uh, there will be a percentage of the the income goes to a building, so that Danny can display this stuff. A percentage goes to music scholarships. A percentage actually goes to Artists for Addicts as well, because Joe made the introduction. 
uh, and there'll be subsequent projects that come from that, hopefully. Yeah, well, movies, documentary, media. There's a, there's a whole media play on this too, and I know, from my standpoint, you know, the uh, artists for addicts. Uh, there's a lot of people that I know that will really get involved in this once that gets started. Yeah, and and I think the the good thing about all this too is I'm going to make sure, especially the main artists who sooner or later are going to hear about it, I'm going to make sure they hear about it from me because I want them to endorse it rather than, what's he doing? Mm -hmm. You know, he's selling our shit. He, we gave him that stuff. Well, I am selling that stuff, and I have spent a lot of money saving it and preserving it all these years, but now something really cool could be done with it if all this clicks and works together, which it should. Um, what a great way to fill in some of that void of their fame, mm -hmm. you know, by, by being a part, just by signing their name years ago for me, they had no idea it kept all this stuff. Right. Um, they're going to help people yeah. doing that. And, and anytime you can add that in there, not as a gimmick, but as a real reason to do something, people will feel that and, and it, it should get the attention it deserves. Yeah. So that just another, uh, and Howard will probably talk about it a little bit, and uh, same with Akshay. It's just uh, another way, another way to say, hey, look, here's this technology. We got the Guard Foundation. What's being built on top of it? And uh, for me, I want people to go, wow, that's like really cool shit in the real world. Like there's people out there in the world not staring at a computer that are benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super stoked about it, and we'll uh, we'll share what we can with you guys. And uh, Mike's up next, but he's MIA. So if anybody wants to squeeze a like a question or two for Danny here, go for it. Yeah, throw him a catch yeah, box. Everybody except Douglas James is welcome to ask <laughs> anything they want. Um, so anyways. <laughs> No, go ahead, go ahead. We'll go, excuse me. Yeah. I don't remember you, how big of a building are you wanting? Boy, um, this house I just got, it was 3,200 square feet plus the garage and I it needed, just for storage, I think it needed at least double, right? That's not displayed, that's just like, this that's is just boxes. put in there. I would say uh, a museum, I think the, the Musical Instrument Museum is a million. I'd like a hundred thousand square feet. Yeah, maybe start with fifty. Okay. But ideally, again, all the stuff that I moved into this house, ideally everything would be under one roof, and, and everything would be accessible in there with the proper chemicals and fire retards and every safety measure and known to man would be in there, but I'd love to have it all under one roof. We also talked about just... You're not allowed to use the word retarded, by the way. If you're thinking about a retardant. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, was, I was saying that as a joke. Uh, <laughs> if you're thinking about buildings, because this is also another cool thing that we talked about, and it's all, it's all in flux, it's all flexible, is uh, a building where... VIPs like NFT holders, for example, could come to an experience. So we could actually have like a show in the museum. You know, I, I want to. What would be ideal? Uh, and I, I found one place, but it didn't work out. But it had a great room for it. Where you could sit 100, 150 people, mm -hmm. have a small stage, and do shows in there, like living room concerts. Wow. Have the food and the booze if people want it, whatever. And then you could have private tours, rent it out for the night. I mean, imagine having that to your, yourself. Exactly. The entire place. Yeah, yeah. You know. We would do that. <laughs> Um, do you want to build a building or do you want to find an existing I'd love to find one that exists, but then it's a matter of what makes more sense, fixing up a place or building it from scratch. And which, what's the cost difference? I'd rather not, I mean, for, for what I have in mind, it's a lot of walls and it's a lot of, lot of walls. Yeah. Um, Probably high ceilings. And, you know, you know it's a, a gorgeous place and it costs a lot of money, but the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, is one of the finest installations in the world. And I mean, you can actually see on the second floor where they have all the file cabinets and all the stuff. I don't think you're allowed access to it, but 
it, it's so astounding to me to look in that room where all the boxes are with all the files and, and then to dive in them and, and pull the stuff because we used to put everything in those files before digital. So everything is on paper in those boxes that's everything that ran all those shows all those years. And, I mean, I find the most incredible stuff. I found a cash receipt signed by Muddy Waters. I mean, it's priceless. <laughs> and then I go, I did Tucson the next night. It's 1980, I remember. I go to the next one, there's Tucson, boom, another one of those things. And it, it, it's not just the monetary value. It's like I remember him signing it. Mm -hmm. I watched him do it, and he's like, you're going to make me sign all this money. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yes. <laughs> and he did it beautifully. Anyway, those, the fact that you have the, the, in, the insight and awareness, though, to even do that and not just look at it is like, whatever. I mean, because you, you knew there was something there. It's like, I have an incredible swipe file. I mean, there's several thousand square feet of this building devoted to like a great collection of sales letters and different books and courses and but no you 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 know you know the value of that stuff mm -hmm. you know and, and a friend of mine um who brought the beatles to america originally he's dead now but he's a great art collector uh frank barcelona and he always said if you like it get it he goes don't worry about what it's worth don't worry about what you're paying for it just get it and keep it until you don't like it anymore, and then find out what it's worth. Mm -hmm. You know, but I I did this stuff because it was cool, and I liked the wow factor, the the ooh and ah that people would get from coming in, even when I was a kid, fifth grade, coming in the the lines of baseball cards and the pictures and the autograph stuff. I started writing to pay uh, to people when we were eight years old for mm -hmm. for autographs, and that's when baseball and football players, hockey players they would answer you then. Mm -hmm. Now, forget it. They're, they're too busy uh, going to card shows and getting paid on 50 or $100 an autograph. So. Danny, what uh, show artist you promoted that was either shut down or let down or it failed? Who, why, did, why did that happen? What did you learn from it? What got you? Well, the, the first one that comes to mind was we had John Fogarty on March 15th, 2020. Um, the Sunday night, they uh, closed Arizona. And he had, I was in Chicago. I don't really care for John, uh, personally. Great musician, important artist, but I didn't care enough to be there because he doesn't know me, I don't know him, he don't care, I don't care. And I would rather go see my mom in Chicago. So I got a double whammy. I'm visiting her, I get thrown out of her memory care center because everybody's gotta leave, and I get a phone call as I'm getting pitched saying the show is being pulled at Talking Stick, and they not only made the band break, break their gear down, put it away, leave, they didn't let anybody stay there. By midnight, the whole hotel was completely vacant. Um, and I don't know what they did with all those rooms. The, the, the place was sold out. That was, uh, that was probably, yeah, that was the worst one. Uh, a weird one, a funny one, kind of, that happened was I was in Santa Fe at the Downs Racetrack uh, with Santana. And it was an afternoon show. I love doing afternoon shows. Um, and it stormed all night. And they had the stage set up, sound lights are there. It's off and on, and then, uh, now it's raining. And we're letting people in, and they don't even get out of their cars because it's raining so hard. And we're in the grandstand, that's what we're using for a dress room, and Carlos starts yelling at me because it's raining. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm a lot of things, Carlos, but I'm not an asshole because it's raining. He goes, oh, hell, you're not. I didn't come, you didn't know. I said, are you serious? You know, and, and uh, like that, the sun came out. So I went, I went, I went from losing 100, because I would have I had to pay him in full, and all the expenses of the day, it would be 150000 anyway. I remember figuring it out at the time. And we went from losing 150 to making fifty. <laughs> so the swing was that big on whether or not you do a show. Um, I'll give you one final one, which kills everything. I'm the worst. Um, end of the century, millennium, 
I wanted to do Tina Turner at the MGM Grand. So she, they accepted a $3 million offer, one show, and she, she would have just torn it up with that. Suddenly Elton John's manager gets involved, and now they want $9 million for Elton and Tina. I say, have a good time, see you around, I can't do it. They end up working for Caesars, and then I wasn't going to do anything. Then Bette Midler came around for New Year's. Four million dollars, New Year's and New Year's Day, because it's a Friday, Saturday. The Eagles had already passed. Eagles call back four million dollars for the 28th and the 29th. Both of them come back, need five million, need five million. Now I'm into it for 10 million. Hotel's my partner, Mandalay Bay. We go on sale, we're doing, I thought, good. Three weeks before the show, we're still trying to sell some tickets and the Staples Center, which had the Eagles on New Year's, needed to sell some more tickets because the ticket prices were so high. There's no question they should sell out, but when you're talking $300, $500 a ticket in 1999 for, for concert tickets, I mean, those were really high ticket prices, um, and people resented it. And not to mention, if you recall at the time, there was the Y2K, there was terrorist threats, and, 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 and also all the hotels in their infinite wisdom decided to make it a four and five night minimum at $500 a night. And back then, rooms were 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks for a decent room. But this was when they were growing into that age of being resorts instead of just casinos. Um, anyway, three weeks before the show, I'm in LA, we're doing a promotion with the Eagles for media and they're playing live in a studio. And I get a phone call from, the, from my office saying, and they're saying, you're not gonna like this. The hotel returned a thousand tickets a show, four shows, $500 a ticket, $2 million, gone. Then the next day they did it again for 500 or 800. They took back three and a half million dollars worth of tickets they were holding for customers that weren't, weren't coming because of this Y2K and all the rates and all that stuff, and, and I, there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, I told both managers of both acts, and they said, how is that our fault? You know, we didn't, you know, your bookkeeping sucks. <laughs> so uh, so we, we ended up losing $2 million over that uh, weekend with those four shows. The hotel took half the hit, but it was still the most um, I ever had a, a problem with. Um, I mean, these guys wouldn't even pay for their catering or their limousines or, eh, it, it was like good riddance guys, you know. And um, it was then that I decided to sell Evening Star and I ended up selling it a year later to this thing that became uh, ended up becoming Live Nation, but it went through a couple of changes first. But that was enough wow. to get me out of it. Wow! Yeah, wow. I could. I just could. It wasn't just the money; it was the heartlessness of the whole thing. And, and it's like for these acts that are so loved and revered, and they're such assholes. And so, I mean, how how important is money when you're going to let somebody go down that hard? Like you had nothing to do with it, right? Yeah. And all I had to do was say I'm sticking at four million. Yeah. They would have gone or not. And had they gone for four million, I would I would be yelling at them. Well, yeah. But they insisted, so. So no what, done. So what's the advice for bouncing back? Sell, get out, <laughs> just get the hell out of the way and let it let the rich people do it. From you know, fortunately I had partners and there's you know we were able to absorb it, but it's just the the metal hit the, the when you're that wrong or that many things around can trip you up and foil you. Um, it, it makes you a lot more careful. Um, I don't, looking back, I don't know if it was a good thing that I did sell or not, but in, uh, in 2011, I got back to being on my own after 10 years in the other world, and I like my world a lot better. I, I like making my own calls, my own deals, and not waiting for people to say, yeah, it's okay to do what you already know you should do after 40 or 50 years of doing this. Right. But I'm, because I'm your boss, I'll make you wait a couple of weeks. Can you look back at that now and find it funny? Like truly laugh at it? Which? Uh, experiences like you just described. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it's like it happened to somebody else. It's another life. 
Um, I mean, that's already 20 years ago. Yeah, well, no, the reason I bring that up is that I love the line, uh, you know, what comedy is, is pain plus time equals comedy. Yeah, you know, because m- m- most comedy comes from in the moment you're like thinking like, you know, because a lot of people have lost their ass in crypto mm-hmm. and stuff. And I know that like, I lo- you know, there's we, we all have our experiences even with that. You will look back at this years from now and you'll be like, there were some lessons that at the time I hated it. But my God, it actually changed the trajectory of my life. And, and you'll find it funny. And, and, and when you're when you are in a place where you're still resenting the past, that's just life's way of saying. You got to do some. You got to reframe this. You got to do some work Move with on. it because it's 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 a it's raw material for yeah moving on and making your life better. Well, now you know with with having done it the way that I did it, I helped break every major band that everybody mentioned here before at one time or another. Now I can't work with them anymore because the big monopoly company will buy a whole tour for 30, 40, 50 dates and write the check, which makes guys like me obsolete. So I am, you know, if you look at my website, I'm still dealing with household names. They're just not as big of household names. Um, and which is fine because I like who I'm, I'm working with mostly are people who I have great relationships with uh, after all these years and, and or people that I just like or admire that I know I'll have a good time with. I don't like to be that day-to-day promoter at, at their suffering at the whims of agents and competition. If you want to work with me, work with me. If you don't, don't. You know, money's one thing, but when it goes crazy, you just got to step aside. Danny, one last quick question. Um, who is the band or individual, the group, that if they called, you would, you know, walk through a brick wall to work with? They were just so amazing, not only to you, the people around you, because I think so often we see how they're really good with the front person, but all the people that work with that front person, not so much. Who would you want to work with no matter what, again, and why? You know, um, I have to say the the people that I'm really the most comfortable with are Alice and Shep. Um, they're like my best friends. Um, Shep and uh, we've all gone through various walls for each other. Even though, I mean, Alice is coming to town to play or not for me, but it's because he's on one of those tours. So it's like we do Christmas pudding, we raise a lot of money for his thing. and. Um, but I would say it's them. They're, they're the ones that, I mean, we live in each other's homes when we travel. Um, so, yeah, I, those are the ones. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Cheers. You guys will see lots of cool stuff from Danny. Thank you, sir.